0: Uh, Gracious God, we ask that you would speak to us today and encourage us today and challenge us today. Lord, we pray that even now you would be opening up our eyes that we might see more clearly, opening up our ears that we might hear your voice, and opening up our lives that we might be changed. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. I believe it was the Rolling Stones that recognized that we can't get no satisfaction, Uh, but in an article that I read recently uh, by Arthur Brooks, his comment was the issue isn't that we can't get satisfaction, the issue is we can't keep satisfaction. Because of course, satisfaction never lasts, in part because we always want more. This past week, I started reading a book called Scarcity Brain, and in it, the author makes the point that there's something in our brain that over-responds to feelings of not enough, of, of scarcity. It's not just that we always want more, but when we have any fear of missing out or not having enough or not being enough, then our wanting brain goes into overdrive. And many of our worst habits are made manifest by this fear caused by what the author calls scarcity brain, which is why we always want more, so much so that we have trouble even imagining having less. The author tells of an interview he did with a multi-degree civil and architectural engineering PhD professor uh, who got taught a good lesson of construction by his three-year-old son. They were working on the basic concepts of building a bridge, uh, engineering concepts, as you do with three-year-olds, um, using Legos. Uh, and after they were finished building this bridge, they noticed it was a little bit wonky. That's the official engineering term. Uh, because one of the pillars was a little bit shorter than the other. No problem, engineering dad goes to work finding the right pieces to rectify the problem. I will show you, son, how to solve this problem. When he finally had found all of the pieces that were missing, he looked up only to discover that his three-year-old son had already solved the problem by simply removing some of the pieces from the pillar that was too small, which of course made the bridge more stable more secure. Not to mention, if you were actually building this, it would have been cheaper. But the professor was embarrassed because it didn't dawn on him to use less. It didn't dawn on him that you could solve this problem better by subtraction than addition which led him then to set up a series of different experiments with lots of people to see if, am I the only one who does this, or is this kind of more of a natural thing? Uh, Do we all naturally overlook solutions of subtraction? And unsurprisingly, even when he gave the participants hints that they could take, you may need to take something away to solve this problem, or if you're going to add anything, there's going to be an added cost to that. Any, Any hints he gave didn't change anything. They still continually and consistently always only added more. Because as the author concludes, in the human brain, less equals bad, worse, unproductive. More equals good, better, productive. Our scarcity brain defaults to more and rarely considers less. And when we do consider less, we often think it sucks. Now, some of you are thinking, tell that to my spouse. Because they always only want more, while I do want less. But later in the book, the author speaks to how this may come from the exact same place. Both over-accumulation and minimalism are often driven by a kind of perfectionism where you want to do everything just right. There's a sort of anxiety, but it's different from overaccumulators. Overaccumulators Over-accumulators have anxiety that they're going to make a mistake and need something, so they collect and collect and collect. Minimalists have a kind of anxiety around disorder and having so much that they can't escape. Whether it's keeping all sorts of odds and ends in your home for fear of possibly needing them one day or going all in on minimalism, the behavior helps people find a sense of control. The behavior helps people find a sense of control, which is what we're all looking for in a world that feels chaotic. While we think about that, let me remind you where we are, and then we'll see what Jesus has to say about all of this. Today, we're continuing our series studying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and as we've been talking about, Jesus seems to be painting a picture of how we Christians are supposed to live, and yet also how we are to be different, how we are to be distinct from everyone else. Because, of course, as much as Jesus' sermon sounds like really good news and and common moral advice, the reality is that it's really hard to live out. And yet, this is who he's calling us to become, calling us to be disciples. We are to become, therefore, a, a people poor in spirit and meek and merciful and we're supposed to be peacemakers, we're supposed to be pure in heart. We're supposed to be these beatitude kind of people that we talked about the first week. And we're called to live this into a world that, that sometimes feels dark, so much so that we are to be light, a world that sometimes decays, so much so that we are to be like salt, so much so that we become a people who love our neighbors and love strangers and love even our enemies then leads to more generosity, more prayer, more fasting, because we'll need God to do this kind of work as we live out His kingdom come, as we live as His disciples becoming more like Jesus, as we live out these Beatitudes. But this will continually require a refining of our hearts. So if you would, I would invite you and encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6 verse 19, as we continue on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Let's read. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, What you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying at a single hour to your life, and why do you worry about clothes? But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen. So much good stuff here to cover. Uh, First, let's notice that this is one of those passages you've probably heard before, which means it's really easy to overlook the depth. Because of our familiarity. I mean, this passage seems simple enough. It sounds good enough. Uh, Where your treasure is, there your heart is. You can't serve God and money. Seek first his kingdom. Don't worry, be happy. That might be a song, but it's similar to this. Uh, All of these things are familiar. All of them good. All of them simple enough. And yet, these are so hard to live out. Uh, Additionally, before we move on, let's not forget our context Because Jesus has just finished talking about doing our faithful acts for the wrong reasons, in order to be noticed. But when you pray, pray like this. But when you give, give like this. But when you fast, fast like this. He's just said you could do the right things for the wrong reasons in order to be noticed by others. And so this passage may not only be talking about the dangers of money, but it also may be talking about how we sometimes misuse that money, especially in our pursuit of fame or status or prestige. And maybe Jesus is pointing us toward a different way to live such that we might become better disciples. And so I want us to go back through this passage, and I want us to look at the treasures we pursue and value. Then I want us to talk about our fears and our worries before finally trying to figure out what are these treasures in heaven and how might we find our satisfaction in them. But we start with what most of us spend the most of our time seeking our stuff, our treasures, our our satisfaction. Which, of course, begs the questions, what is it that you seek? What do you focus your eyes on and dream about? What do you spend your time on? What are the treasures of your heart? And as we've talked about, many of the things that hopefully you just thought about are probably good things. But I wonder, is there a danger there as well? Because we tend to make idols out of our desires and our treasures. Our goals tend to become our gods, as one commentator pointed out. And more frightening still, we become like whatever it is that we worship. So it's not that money is inherently always bad, but if you pursue and value that over everything else, it begins to become the metric with which you judge everything else and everyone else, and it starts to be the way that you see the world and people. Kids are great. They're a blessing. But if their success becomes your ultimate worth, then your life becomes lopsided. Not to mention that that's sort of unfair to them. If their success becomes your ultimate worth, then something is wrong. Being liked, being popular, that's not all bad. But when it becomes the most important way that you evaluate your life, how many likes you get, then we start to sacrifice ourselves for the applause. And because of this, I think it is worth spending a little bit of time trying to figure out, so then what are we seeking? What are we focusing on? What are our lives pointing toward? I find Thomas Aquinas to be helpful here in his Summa Theologica. He pointed out that some of the main things we pursue, often unconsciously, uh, fall into the following four buckets, if you will. There's money, there's power, there's pleasure, and there's fame. And most likely, if you think about that, money, power, pleasure, fame, there's one or two of those that you gravitate toward a little bit more than the others. One or two of them that you focus on a little bit more than the others. One or two that you evaluate the world with more than others. So you may disproportionately care about what others think of you. Or you may keep a little too focused on your money. There's responsible, and then there's obsessing, and that's a little closer to where you land. You may like the little things that that give you pleasure, or you may want to be the one who always makes the decision and moves things the way you want them to be moved. And again, these aren't all bad things, but they become changed when we start making bad decisions because of them when we don't recognize their pull on us. Jesus says it this way, you can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and gain. You can't serve God and mammon. A lot of translations leave it in the original Greek so that we remember this isn't just sociological, but it's spiritual. As you overly pursue these treasures they start to take up a disproportionate amount of your heart. And soon there's less and less room for God or anyone else for that matter. More than that, we often pursue more in order to obtain some level of control in a world that often feels chaotic. And I have to wonder, is that the real reason that we pursue our treasures? The reason I want more is so that I can feel some sense of stability or security or status. Is that the reason we focus on these treasures? See, maybe this is the real problem. Maybe we're looking for more out of our treasures than they can rightfully give. And this is why we don't actually see Jesus criticizing desire. He's not saying that wanting is wrong. He's not saying that purpose or direction or hope is the problem. Instead, what he's taking issue with is the object of those desires. In fact, if anything, by our very nature and design, we are made to seek. And while that does often get us in trouble bringing out the worst, it also brings out the best in us. But therefore, the bigger issue is what and how and why and who we seek that matters the most. You'll notice Jesus isn't telling us, seek not. He's telling us, seek better. Because it's only in seeking better that we find satisfaction, not to mention stability and peace and all the rest. Interestingly, it's our same treasures that then bring about our biggest fears. Because if you disproportionately want something or care for something, that then becomes the object of your biggest fears. More than that, in many ways, it's our fears that simply are pointing toward what it is we can't control. Because, of course, it's this feeling of being out of control about the things we care about the most that manifest themselves as our worries and our fears most of the time. At first, this may strike you as odd. It it did for me. But the more I think about it, the more that I find that a lot of my fears are really just a deeper feeling of being out of control. We worry about something or someone when we know we can't keep them safe or make them better. And so we worry. We feel anxiety about not being able to be in control about some future thing that's going to happen, and we worry. Think about a few different examples of this. I'm, I'm worried about my kid's safety, my kid's future, and the reason I am is because I'm not in control over what happens or what will happen. And so my response is I worry. I'm, not, I'm worried about a, a grade on a test coming up. And the real reason I'm upset is because I am not ultimately in control of how well I do or don't do other than studying. But instead of studying, I'll worry because I'm not in control. If we're worried about our finances, our our future, our, our fame, our whatever, I'm really just upset that I don't have as much control of my life as I would like. When we're worried about the state of our world, are we really just upset that we can't make it better? That we are not in control? In all of these, it strikes me that that fear is often a manifestation of simply not being in control of things. And the real problem is that this kind of control is an illusion. While I can make someone safer, I can't make them safe. While I can limit liability, I can't eliminate risk. While I can plan and research and prepare, I can't know it all, which is the problem. We worry because we're not in control, but at the same time, we can't be. What's more, the, the worry doesn't really help as much as we like to think it does. And it can even keep us from really actually living, not to mention, keep the other person from really growing. Because sometimes it's in the struggle that we grow. It's in the falling that we learn to get back up. It's in the jumping that we learn to fly. But there's a balance, isn't there? Not enough fear, and we can be hurt too much. Too much fear, and we forget to actually live. Interestingly, I think there's a kind of a community of people, a movement, if you will, that really illustrate this balance wrong, I guess, and and helps us see where we might balance it better. This community, this movement's been around for a long time, and it's had different names and iterations all throughout the years, but it's become really popular again recently. Uh, and the name of this movement, they're known, I believe, as preppers. Uh, survivalists is kind of the other word that we would use sometimes. And their goal is, is a good one. How do we be prepared? Which I think you will agree is a, is a great goal. I was a Boy Scout. Be prepared is kind of a motto for me. But when does preparation become too much? When does fear of everything become a liability? So a good prepper would have noticed that last week, Southlake had some water issues and the water wasn't clean and you had the boil notice and all the rest. So a, a good prepper would say, we are, we're going to need to have enough water on hand that we can, we can last for a couple of days or so until the water comes back on. Probably going to need some water filters as well, some purifiers, Of course, if that could happen, we could also run out of food. So we're definitely going to need to store that in bulk, not to mention learn to hunt just in case. And of course, we're going to need some other supplies, bandages, blankets, the whole bit. That goes without saying. That's just table stakes. That's just being able to play at an initial level. But then we start, and this is the key. Then we start with the but what ifs. And this is when things start to spiral. This is when we start to go down the rabbit hole. But what if the water never comes back up? Well then. But, but what if the stores never open ever again? But what if the power goes out and can't be fixed? But what if communications stop and you see us starting to spiral and then it just keeps going? But what if the whole infrastructure of our whole world goes down? What if it starts raining fire and brimstone? But what about the zombie apocalypse? We have to be prepared for everything. And somewhere it becomes ridiculous. But notice what happened. What started out as preparedness, uh, prudence, ends up sounding a little bit crazy at some point. Because, of course, you can't control everything. And you shouldn't. Turns out we're not very good at that. Also notice that this smacks a little bit of a complete mistrust of God, And it gets us completely focused in the wrong direction and on the wrong things. Which might be why Jesus tells us to seek otherwise. Which might be why Jesus tells us, don't worry quite so much. Jesus says, don't store up these things, store up those things. Don't worry about these things. Seek those things, treasures in heaven is what he calls them. So the obvious question as we come to the end of this sermon, this one, not Jesus's, is what are these heavenly treasures? Because obviously we're not talking about stuff here. Uh, We're not talking about our toys and trinkets or property or possessions. Can't take that with us, and so clearly that's not what he's talking about when he says we should store up those in heaven. We could go back to Aquinas, heavenly treasures probably also aren't money, power, pleasure, or prestige. Because again, none of that matters that much for us in heaven. So what's left? What are these treasures in heaven that Jesus tells us to store up? Though maybe he gives us the answer at the end of our passage. Because he tells us we are supposed to be seeking something. He says we are to seek first his kingdom and seek first his righteousness. This gives us two very interesting answers to our question. Maybe seeking his kingdom, living under his rule and reign in this world and to the people around us is how we store up treasures in heaven as we live in this place, making this place more like that place, as we do the kinds of things that Jesus would do if he was in charge, maybe that's one of the ways we store up treasures in heaven. Maybe also as we seek his righteousness, living in the ways that he wants us to live, becoming the kind of people he wants us to become, living as disciples, really. Maybe that's also how we store up treasures in heaven. In other words, maybe heavenly treasures aren't about what we have, but instead who we are and what we do. Who we're becoming. Because in some ways, that's all we can take with us. Which really points us back to the beginning of Jesus' sermon in the first place, the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers and pure in heart, blessed are the meek and merciful. Maybe it's all about discipleship and kingdom living, which is what we've been talking about all along. Maybe what's really important is who we are and what we do and who we are becoming. Maybe it's in becoming more like Jesus. And living out his kingdom here and now. Maybe this is how we store up treasures in heaven. Maybe this is what it means for us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Which, frankly, brings us back to the beginning part of chapter 6. And therefore give, but not like that. And pray, but not like that. And, and fast. Because we're going to need God's help because it's his kingdom and it's his righteousness that we're seeking. Let's pray. Lord God, we acknowledge that a lot of the time what we're really looking for is a sense of control. And a lot of times, because we don't feel in control, because we're not in control, we are a people who worry. And yet, Lord, you point us toward a different way, a different trust, because ultimately it's you who's in control. And so we pray again today that you would hold this world in your hand so that we might be able to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. We pray that you would be moving powerfully in our lives, through our lives, into your world. But help us look toward you first and best and most. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.